Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Excellencies, distinguished colleagues, eminent guest speakers, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Mahima Verma. I'm an intern for the permanent mission of the Republic of Senegal. I would like to welcome you all to the mission of Senegal, a country of Toronto. Today, we are celebrating the International Day of Friendship, a reminder that human solidarity is essential to promoting peace. At this occasion, we would like to highlight the vital work NGOs, nonprofit organizations, and states are doing around the world to promote human rights, build a culture of peace, and facilitate peaceful cohabitation. We would like to further discuss specifically the ways that NGOs and nonprofit organizations in your country and region are utilizing digital and social media for the good of all humanity. To enrich our discussion, I would like to warmly welcome our speakers, Mr. Matthew Daniels, a law professor, founder of the Institute of World Politics, and author of the newly released book entitled Human Liberty 2.0, the first edition of an annual book series featuring stories of humanitarians around the globe who utilize digital and social media to advance the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Secondly, I'd like to welcome Ms. Katie Money, Director of Business Development and Partnerships of Ushedi, a technology social enterprise launched in Kenya in 2008. Ushedi in Swahili means testimony. Mushedi is known for their innovative work in crowdsourcing to save victims of natural disaster. At the end of their presentations, we will open the floor to comments. And at the end of this discussion, we will serve lunch. I have now the pleasure to give the floor to Ambassador Sheikh Nyan, and permanent representative of Senegal to the United Nations for his introductory remarks. Excellency, the floor. Thank you, Mahima. I will not be long. I would like just first of all to start by welcoming you all uh, for being here. It's very special event. We are holding uh, its celebration, National Day of Friendship. And I'm very grateful to my colleagues, ambassadors, Ambassador Luis, all the colleagues, and all of them are happy. Come to the tradition of Senegal to honor us and to celebrate in a way International Day of Friendship. As you probably know, Senegal is known as the country of Teranga. The term in which means hospitality, which is a key feature of the Senegalese culture and value, a feature you can find in many African societies, in all of the societies. Senegal is also a country notorious for its tolerance of people of different cultures and religions. And we are deeply attached to the principles of human rights and the promotion of peace. Therefore, it is an honor for us today to have our guest speakers participating in this important to see that uh, my friend Daniels, Mr. Moni, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Moni and Mr. Enada. We are pleased to have you here among us, and we are looking forward to the fruitful discussion on the efforts and initiatives that by the NGOs, group of organizations, and states to document human rights violations by using social media. And thank you. Thank you, Excellency, for the very kind words of welcome. It is now my pleasure to give the floor to Mr. Matthew Daniels, author of the newly released book, Human Liberty 2.0. Mr. Daniels, the floor is yours. Thank you. Everybody hear me okay? Um, bonjour. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm from Washington, D.C., and my time in Washington has taught me that when you speak, less is more. <laughs> so I'm going to keep it brief. Um, I know you all have busy jobs. I've learned a lot about how many meetings you have to go to here at the U.N. It seems to be a, a, sort of like running a marathon. You have to be able to go to meetings and stay away for long periods of time. Uh, hopefully this won't be boring. Uh, I want to thank the ambassador for his gracious remarks, for his friendship, and his encouragement uh, of our cause. I want to thank the staff of the embassy, who've been fantastic. Um, I wish you folks were running 
the government in Washington, D.C. And for uh, those of you who represent all the different nations in this room, thank you for coming. Um, I'm the chair of Law and Human Rights at the Institute of World Politics. We're a graduate school of international affairs in Washington, D.C. I also uh, founded a nonprofit educational organization called Goodwall. And what we seek to do is to promote the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We do that in different ways, but the most fruitful way is through stories. We found that these principles are best communicated not in the abstract, but through lives and through stories of people who embody these principles. Um, I am fascinated by the wisdom of the drafters of the Universal Declaration. Um, that document was ahead of its time when it was created in 1948. And I'm still learning to appreciate the wisdom uh, that was put into this document. But one particular uh, political insight that uh, I recall to my own mind every day, uh, you know, most human rights instruments in history have been addressed to monarchs, to governing bodies, to, to political entities. Uh, the Declaration of Independence was addressed to the King of England. Yeah. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was addressed to all humanity. Now, in that um, uh, interesting fact is, a, I think, a very interesting political insight by the drafters. At the end of the day, ordinary people are the ones who have the greatest interest in the protection and promotion of their own rights. More than any government uh, agency, more than any um, organization, as well-meaning as a government or an organization might be, um, people themselves have a, the strongest interest in the protection and promotion of their own rights. Now, when the document was drafted in 1948, it was a very different world. There was a, there was a limit to what ordinary people could do to promote and protect fundamental human rights. But the digital age has put powerful tools into the hands of ordinary people, into the hands of the private sector, into the hands of NGOs. That's what this book is about. This book is about that story that is now being told in our world that we call Human Liberty 2.0, where ordinary people, NGOs, pick up the torch of universal rights and carry it forward um, in a way that I hope will increase the scope of freedom, tolerance, and democracy in our world. Um, that's the reason for the book. That's what we hope to promote with this. This book is a collection of stories from every continent in the world of ordinary people, NGOs, charities, who have picked up the torch of universal rights and um, whether it's freedom of speech, whether it's freedom from human trafficking, whether it's access to education, clean drinking water. Um, and I tell people that I wrote this book so that I would have an antidote to the evening news. <laughs> you know, you watch the evening news, sometimes it's very depressing, yeah? But there are all kinds of good things going on in the world, we just don't hear about it. Uh, and we need to celebrate and encourage these stories. Um, the reason we invited you here today is to ask you to help us. Um, I want to expand the universe of um, stories uh, that we are able to tell and share. This book is an annual publication, so this is the first edition. There'll be another one in a year. We would love to have stories from your country, from your region, of the people, the charities, the NGOs, who are lifting up the torch of universal rights in your region. Um, and so I would ask you, please, to think about um, sharing those stories with us. Um, Tony, you want to raise your hand? And Brita, back there, Brita. It, do me a favor, before you leave this room, would you make sure you give your card to Tony or Brita so that we can follow up with you and uh, be in dialogue with you about any stories, any groups, any charities, any NGOs that you know of in your country um, that can help us in this great enterprise of promoting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the Digital Age. Thank you very much. Mr. Daniels, thank you very much for your very insightful presentation, and we're looking forward to discovering more stories of humanitarian group. It is now my pleasure to give the floor to Ms. Kate Tony, um, of Roshegi, a crowdsourcing social enterprise working in Kenya and Thailand. Thank you. Um, hello, everyone. I first want to say a big thank you to Dr. Matthew Daniels for inviting me to be here today, to the 
uh, Mission to Senegal for hosting this event and for all of you uh, who turned out to come and, and hear us talk. Um, it's wonderful to be here, wonderful to be here on the International Day of Friendship. Um, I work, my name is Katie Money, I am the Director of Business Development and Partnerships for an organization called Ushahidi. Ushahidi is a Kenyan tech nonprofit social enterprise, which is a mouthful. Um, we are a small organization of about 25 people. Uh, we work remotely across the world, we're across 11 different uh, uh, countries, but our only office is based in Nairobi. And, um, and that's where we're headquartered. And we build um, and dedicate our time to building open source technology that can be used um, to benefit uh, humanitarian response, the promotion of um, human rights, and uh, the responses to natural disasters and conflicts um, of like. And we were founded about 12 years ago now in the aftermath of election violence that broke out in the 2007-2008 uh, uh, Kenyan elections. We were founded by four Kenyan bloggers at the time that were seeing um, a lot of violence and atrocities and things happening on the ground that were was being uh, not necessarily brought up in the media, um, not necessarily talked about, and, um, and so the, the world didn't necessarily know what was going on. And so they created a technology platform called the Ushikidi platform to allow people on the ground, uh, citizens, community members to submit reports of what was happening, to submit pictures of what was happening, um, and to allow organizations who wanted to monitor the situation and help respond to then analyze what was going on on a live, interactive map. And so since then, we've had multiple different versions of the UCDB platform that we've um, iterated upon and built new features for. We're now on our full version three of the Ushahidi platform, and it's our—it's really our flagship platform inside of our organization called Ushahidi. It's open source, um, which means it's available online. Uh, our, our code base is available online for anybody to grab and use and deploy for free. Um, we also have a SaaS platform, a software, software as a service platform, where we host and maintain software, and then um, organizations, small grassroots, nonprofit. Um, activists or community organizations can uh, can use it for a low monthly fee. And then we also have an enterprise partnership model where we essentially provide a lot of additional expertise and services and trainings to integrate as a full-scale tech partner or subcontractor on a larger uh, global international development or humanitarian response project. Um, so over the past 11 or 12 years, it's been used over 200,000 times across the world, across 160 plus different countries, and across many different sectors. So anything from global health, to uh, democracy and good governance, to human rights monitoring, election monitoring, conflict, disasters, response to different emergencies, environmental monitoring, and then any, a lot of different, different types of projects just related to community engagement where you need to be collecting information from the community, communicating back to them, and then making programmatic decisions on your projects based upon um, the ground truthing or the information that the community is providing to you. Um, and the platform itself works, uh, has about four different um, aspects to it. So the first aspect is that you can collect information from your beneficiaries or your citizens or your community via many different modes. You can collect information via SMS, via um, an app that we've created uh, and built for both iOS and Android, uh, via a dedicated email address that you uh, you designate for your deployment of the UCDB platform. Um, you can pull in Twitter hashtags as well, um, or you can direct those people that are reporting to the dedicated URL that you have with your deployment. So it's, it's multimodal, and we did that because we want anybody um, we want anybody to be able to submit reports and raise their voice and contribute to these um, to these projects and to be to be able to use whatever technology they have in their pocket or they have and find most accessible to them to be able to use it. So once the information comes in, it is then um, managed by some platform administrators. Um, it is um, you can do some quality assurance on the data that's coming in. You can go back to the people um, who have submitted those reports and ask them follow-up questions and translate it. And then it's um, structured on a live interactive map. So you can visualize the situation. Um, it's broken down by different categories of reports. So it's a, 
the main tool is really a crowdsourcing mapping feature. Um, and, and that's why it's very helpful during uh, situational awareness type projects and response efforts as well. Um, and then you can also pull out all of the data via CSV and throw it into something else to analyze it in Tableau or SPSS or R. Um, and then there's a feature that's very helpful during times of crises, which we call uh, automatic uh, notifications as well. So anybody who has submitted a report into the platform can designate um, for there to be an automatic SMS and email that goes back to them when anyone else submits a report to the platform within a certain radius around them or with a certain keyword. So they could be alerted to, say, violence that's breaking out nearby. Um, so this is the Ushigidi platform. And like I said, it's been used all across the world. It's free and open source online. We also get involved in projects and work with organizations as tech partners to help maximize the impact that can be achieved through this, um, through this tool. But um, Ushigidi, the organization, has also done many other things along the way. We're a bit of a tech incubator. We always have a side project going and another thing that we're working on. Um, in the past, we have spun out other organizations through these kind of side projects that we've had. We created a, uh, a tool called Brick, which is a mesh networking um, internet hardware tool that is bringing internet to uh, rural locations across Kenya and uh, expanding to other countries as well. It's now a separate for-profit entity. Um, we have been really dedicated to um, to helping build up the um, the tech community and uh, developer community within Kenya. We founded the iHub there. Uh, we also created a tool called Tenpore, which is an emergency communication tool for teams um, or for companies. So not, not in the sense of you're communicating with your citizens, but you're communicating with your staff and your team members, and you want to check in with them on a regular basis or when uh, violence breaks out to make sure that you have a duty of care over your staff. We've also just open sourced that tool and it's open and available and free for anyone to use. And then finally, what we're working on right now is a new tool called Dispatcher. Um, and we are, we are trying to uh, use machine learning and AI to better match resources with needs during emergencies. Um, essentially, if you could think of it as a Lyft or an Uber for community resilience and disaster response. And, um, and so right now we're in, a, we're in a prototype phase, we have a beta product, we're doing a lot of user research and testing on it, and, um, and seeking fundraising to develop this product further. But our, our main tool and the tool that's really been instrumental in, um, in humanitarian response, disaster response, and the, uh, the uh, raising up of voices to monitor human rights violations is the Ushibidi platform, which is our flagship platform. And I'm, I'm really happy to talk about other examples of where it's been used um, and answer any questions, but I don't want to take up too much time. So I know there are a lot of other people from organizations here who can also share some really great insights. So I'll leave it at that. I'm going to tell one 60-second Mushahidi story. It's in my book, so I have a noble story. The founder of Mushahidi, Patrick Meyer, who is a graduate of Brandeis, a school I attended, uh, wanted to do something about the disaster in Haiti, people trapped in the rubble under the Haiti earthquake. And the Marines were sent down, the UN uh, had uh, forces in the area, um, they were using paper maps. So Patrick Meyer used Mushikini to create a crowdsourced map of reports of people trapped in the rubble in Haiti. In 48 hours, the Marines and the UN were using the Ushahidi map. They had thrown away their paper maps. Created by volunteers who were part of a network, a digitally mediated network around the world, you know, crowd mapping experts. Then the next step, uh, the Haitian uh, phone company set up a free text messaging service where you could report people trapped in the rubble. But the messages were coming in in Haitian Creole, which re really isn't proper French. The Marines, the UN, they didn't have a lot of Haitian Creole speakers, so Patrick Meyer goes on Facebook, recruits volunteers who are Haitian Creole speakers from all the Haitian Creole Facebook groups, so they translate the text, put them on the map, so people were saved on the ground in Haiti, pulled out of the rubble, because of a group of volunteers who used this platform, most of whom never went to Haiti, and they saved lives on the ground in Haiti. That's an example of what this group can do. Sorry. 
making this money and thank you to Daniels for sharing your Shahidi platform and showing us the significance of crowdsourcing as a tool for the promotion and protection of human rights. We certainly appreciate you sharing your experiences with us today. I would like to now call on our last speaker, Mr. Stefan Anada, a leader of the International Committee on Nigeria. He will share his experiences using social media in documenting crime, vulnerability, and drivers of violence in Nigeria. Mr. Stefan Anada, you have the floor. Thank you, you Martin, for this invitation. Thank you, uh, Excellency, sir. Um, I'm Stephen Anadio. Before I proceed, uh, the country nearly cost one of our cabinet ministers his job. So he can get the love rise and the high rise and all that. So I would like to test that out today. <laughs> but I. Uh, uh, it's a privilege and honor to be here. Uh, International Committee on Nigeria, ICON, uh, which uh, I co-founded with my friend, and also, thankfully, one of my colleagues is here, Dr. Martin. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, <clears throat> we actually started this organization three years ago when uh, Nigeria started witnessing the height of uh, instability as a result of uh, terrorism. Uh, all that conflicts. Um, <clears throat> we, we started off to respond to these uh, issues, but do you know what? Anytime I travel to uh, the United Kingdom to engage the parliament, anytime I engage the Congress in this equation, is where are the evidence that this really happened? And I can't blame them because uh, over the years we've heard where some people will take pictures in Somalia and report that it happened either in Mali or in Nigeria. So sometimes the legitimacy of our story is undermined because we don't really have uh, uh, appropriate reporting uh, uh, mechanism to validate our claims that this happened or it never happened. So, like, I'll tell you a simple story. Uh, I was just coming from my office in Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, 11 years ago, and somebody, there were rumors everywhere that uh, somebody, one magician, came to town and turned his cool gear to a boat. And everybody was flying with that news. Oh, what has happened to our world? Somebody has turned somebody to a boat. So I said, I asked the person, where is that place? He said, that's true. So I went to the school and meet the principal. He said, excuse me, sir. I learned somebody turned one of your students to go to say, not this school. All right, I went again in search of true story because I would like to see who turned somebody to goat and who is that goat and who is the parent. <laughs> and this story just went to become a hoax. And that is uh, important because when you are trying to uh, report an incident, you need some mechanism to help you to actually bring the correct report to your audience. So having been confronted with the question, what are we going to do as an organization uh, doing uh, all of this reporting and also trying to engage the international community on what we do, then we partner with uh, Eyewitness to create what we call Eyewitness Hub. And uh, what we do by this is uh, we use this app to allow individuals and groups to securely message one another quickly, confirmable and with uh, a variety of mediums, audio, video, stills, and attachment. So uh, in the last one year, we have actually trained uh, some people, some leaders, uh, about 200 people have been trained so far how to use this uh, app. And then we have uh, over 2,563 users as of today. So, well, the user captured veritable videos, photos of atrocity crimes using the free app we developed through uh, the eyewitness. And then we need to look at it. Uh, they are recorded. When the app user takes a picture or uploads a video, it will show the longitude and the latitude. So now, this is just to tell everybody that this actually happened. So it's something that we will verify, and that has really helped us to manage our conversation with our friends, because we begin to look at uh, the 
mainstream media, not actually maybe sorry to say this, uh, there was a report of an incident that happened in Borono State, that is uh, northeastern region of Nigeria, and then the person who reported it was in Kenya. And the question is, where did you go there? So now somebody can be in the confine of his uh, house and report something happening. So this undermines the legitimacy of uh, different crime stories coming from either Nigeria or elsewhere. So we need to see how we can manage this. So what do you, what do we do with our uh, eyewitness app? Anybody just your smartphone using the app, you download it in your smartphone. You record what you want to record at that particular time that crime is being committed, atrocities is being committed. And then you see when what we are trying to do also is that we want to send people when crisis happens, people seem to run away from that crisis spot. But we want to send people to the crisis spot. That is what we are trying. We are not saying go and die, but we are saying you can go and help us do this so that we have information and data that actually captures the incident. So using the app, we record the information. The app collects metadata for verification. So you send the footage to our secure server, then you keep the copy of the footage you share. Our analysts can now assess your footage. Then we begin to help to relate that with what actually has happened and with what other people are saying. And then we say, look at it. This is what you can confirm that story of that person, whether this incident really happened. Yes, there is, it's incontrovertible that crisis happened in Nigeria. Yes, crisis happened today. But the question is that, are we actually, uh, what do I call it, are we manipulating the records coming from this uh, incident uh, scene? So we want something that is verifiable, was something that everybody will be able to trust. And what this has done from time to time is to say, oh, this actually happened. And that is uh, keeping the record. And so we, we, we begin to look at, uh, and this is very good, because if you take pictures at the incident uh, spot, if there is no Wi-Fi, we use Wi-Fi or your phone data to do this, even if there is none of the above, anytime you go to where your phone connects to a particular service, it uploads immediately. Security? Yes, sir. It is secured, managed by eyewitness. So this is what we do in our own accountability project in Nigeria, and we are expanding because when you talk about our activities, we have expanded to cover some part of Cameroon because we actually have Cameroon, Niger, Chad, what we refer to as uh, the Lake Chad region. So we uh, begin to look at what can we do to monitor. And what we are trying to do, we are actually going to train a lot of people in what we call predictive analysis, in the sense that we know the trend, how this uh, crisis happened, the trend it takes. So now we are trying to train to be able to predict before it will happen also. So this is another project we are embarking upon, and then we are looking forward to uh, launch this uh, October this year so that we'll be able to protect vulnerable citizens who are in the harm way. So, um, much more than that, we also, uh, when uh, the ministerial, the, the, the first edition which happened last year, uh, we brought some people from Nigeria, some religious leaders to participate in this program. I would like to see how religious leaders contribute to Nigeria uh, cohesion. So this year, before, when it happened, ICON, my organization, actually took International Religious Freedom Roundtable from the United States to Nigeria. So we have actually succeeded in bringing two uh, hostile Muslim groups together for discussion. And we are making some progress. I want to share this because we are engaged through all these activities also, and we can record some measure of success. How? Sunni and Shia, never, they, they never meet face to face. but we were able to bring them together and they are discussing. And currently, they are actually advocating for the release of one of their leaders as well in Nigeria. So it's really a combination of different factors and what ICON wants to do through religious leaders. And we are looking forward to see how we bring other religious leaders 
in that region, in Cameroon, in Chad, in Niger, in Mali. Because we look at these fragmentations and we look at uh, implosion that can happen if we allow this crisis to continue. So this is what we are doing, and that is how we are making use of our power to be able to, first of all, the return issues, violence that is happening, taking place, we bring it to the attention of the world, and then that also helps us manage accountability, and also to be able to shine that light on the perpetrator that this actually happened. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hernandez, for sharing your experiences with the ISS platform and providing insights on the significance of social media as a human rights tool in Nigeria. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, we have now reached the conclusion of our presentations. On the International Day of Friendship, we are reminded today here of the importance of gathering for global peace with conversations between academics, diplomats, and those who work in the diverse fields of international organizations. We have now the honor to open the floor for questions, starting with the permanent representatives for remarks, comments, and suggestions. We'd like to kindly request that you please introduce yourself prior to asking a question so that the speakers may know who you are. Um, my proposal is to take a first round of questions before giving that floor to the speakers. If there's not any objection, then we can proceed this way. Thank you. Having covered many of these events, I'm grateful to Secretary for allowing us to meet these distinguished speakers. What is important is the follow-up. Now we come, we listen, and many of us understand the subjects, like the Chad Basin, which is so key. As a matter of fact, the president-elect now of Nigeria to the UN has said that the Chad Basin is going to be one of his priorities. What I would like is to be able to reach every one of these speakers, to know how, if you're in Washington, you probably don't come to New York that often, but if you do, when we can see you again and get more information, from the gentleman from Nigeria, extremely key his discussion, because one of the areas and one of the problems in Nigeria is these rumors of fights between the different tribes, the Christian and the Muslim, are sometimes artificial intelligence. It, that's not the problem. It's the rebels coming in and disturbing the area. It's not what people think, religious warfare. So all of this is very key, and many of us are knowledgeable to these problems, but you're helping us if we can then be in touch with you in the future where we can locate you. This gentleman, Mr. Matthews, brought a team, but the gentleman from Nigeria, are you going to disappear like the Scarlet Pimpernel after this meeting, or will we be able to be in touch with you, and how long will you be staying in New York? Oh, I'm Gloria Kins, I'm Society Diplomatic Review, and I'm on the board of HALT uh, Ebola, which is the DRC. I'm on their board of directors, and that's been formed in Washington. And of course, this digital intelligence is very important for that, because when we talk about the DRC and Ebola, people are beginning to think it's in the whole country, and they cannot go there anymore. It's on the edges and far away of the country. And it could hurt the country if the State Department begins to say you cannot go to DRC. You have the same problem with Chad. Chad is 100% safe. But somehow or other, the State Department got the wrong idea. But people who go there say it's safer than New York City. You can walk the streets and not worry even three, four, five in the morning, here you can get killed. Anyway, so my main point is, and that's why I'm very interested to keep in touch, is when I'm on the board of Fault Ebola, and your apps and your information that you have could be very important to for Dempsey, for getting this, uh, this all over the world, not just here today, but whatever the case. So the case is, I'm Gloria Kids. I'm in the New York phone book. I'm so old. 
Thank you very much. Uh, happy <coughs> friendship today, and thank you to my dear brother and pastor Sheikh of Senegal uh, for inviting us to this important occasion. Thank you for Matthew and our uh, presenters for the uh, valuable uh, presentations. Uh, actually, this is really a very uh, ambitious uh, attempt to always digitalizing this tempting because it gives you uh, the sense that you are able to calibrate and to reach accuracy in uh, dealing with things. This is very ambitious and hopefully we can really be able to, uh, as I mentioned, to follow up and to have some sort of, uh, you mentioned that it's going to be a yearly, yes. uh, so this will give us a chance to uh, compare and to see how progress is happening. Uh, about the, uh, the digitalization and the technology dimension, opens a very wide horizons and uh, sometimes it needs to reconcile something. For example, about using the uh, digital media, uh, sometimes it is supposed to be a vehicle for a, like what we are talking today, constructive way, a vehicle for the day of, uh, of uh, friendship. At the same time, it's also uh, the vehicle which uh, some destructive forces are using as a bit of favoring speech and inciting speech and it's a source of lots of, uh, of, of problems as well. So uh, how can we concise this, how we can really, uh, when we attempt to, uh, uh, there is always this paradox between trying to use these vehicles as an open media for, uh, for everyone and to, as, a, as a right for everyone but at the same time, what are the limitations uh, which prevents from this qualitative transformation from being a constructive force to being a source of uh, structure? Thank you. So you raise a very important point. Um, so all technology can be used for good or evil. Um, pharmaceutical drugs can save your life. They can turn you into a drug addict. Nuclear power can light a city or it can destroy a city. So technology is morally neutral. Uh, it's a question of how we use it. Um, I spend some time in, in my book talking about the abuses of digital media. Um, pornography, um, uh, the spreading of uh, violent extremist ideologies, um, the recruitment uh, by all sorts of violent groups. Uh, ISIS has used the internet to recruit uh, the New Zealand mosque shooter uh, was incredibly adept at using Facebook to promote and to uh, share the violent uh, act that he did in New Zealand. Um, I would say that um, our job is to accelerate the degree to which we use these tools for good. They're going to be used. <laughs> uh, so that's actually one of the motivators for this book. I feel that the good actors in the world are playing catch-up. In many ways, the bad actors have used digital media more effectively. Uh, I think some of these extremist movements are masterful at how they use the internet, how they use, they use ideas from gaming. You know, this ISIS is using ideas from video games to recruit young males. Um, so we have some catching up to do, um, and I just want to see more people involved in that process. I hope that's reasonable. My name is Mary, I work for the UN, 
The only way to judge whether we're true to our mission is to watch what we do. You know, in Washington, we say, ignore what they say, watch what they do, right? So, hopefully, over time, we can demonstrate by our actions that we really do believe in these principles for everyone and that we hold accountable everyone, including our own government, for the violation of those principles. Um, I mean, that's the best I could say. And I would ask you, please, to help us do a better job of finding the information and the stories that present a full picture. Yeah, because by my, I mean, I admit, um, my, you know, we're, we're limited by what experience and knowledge we have, right? So this is part of this process here is trying to expand the universe of information available to us. Um, but I see the Universal Declaration as the heritage of all humanity. And everyone who claims to be civilized uh, should be held accountable to its standards. That's the brand and the message that we hope to carry forward. You can judge us and come back a year from now and tell me if we've done your Thank you. Yeah, um, sorry, I would like to respond to uh, a totally valid that every platform can be misused, and that uh, we are cognizant of that fact that. Uh, Not Facebook, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, our deployed media to uh, so um, well first of all we are not uh, helping any politicians right now we are trying to hold uh, state actors if you remember uh, many countries have been designated as country of particular concern because of uh, different crises but we must admit the fact that there is terrorism in this uh, Nigeria and the Lake Chad region. We know that is uh, a fact. But also, uh, I know everybody wants terrorism in that region to stop. And that means we are not really treating uh, terrorists uh, in this regard as friends. Rather, we are treating them as enemy of all these independent states in Sub-Saharan Africa. So, we are saying that Boko Haram, especially in Nigeria, has committed crime against our people. And so they must be held accountable. But much more than that, you can actually uh, provide humanitarian support if you don't even know the extent of uh, the tragedy, uh, the killings and property destroyed. So we are actually helping international agencies and organizations to understand that at this particular place, X, Y, Z number of people have been killed. And that is a fact. So now, then uh, when it is like ethnic conflict between two tribes, then what we do is to make sure all our religious leaders who we brought to International Religious Freedom Roundtable to discuss issues, we call them and say, look, you have to mediate. And that has actually de-escalated several tensions in some different communities. What we don't do is we don't allow politicians to come and maybe begin to sow some kind of seed of discord in what we do. So we try as much as possible to actually help politicians to understand that this is happening. But not that maybe politicians will come and tell us, don't do this for these people. We are not doing it for anybody irrespective of religion. We are just saying... These are problems happening. These are uh, uh, incidents, and we are recording it. And we are not using it to begin to share to anybody. We are actually using it to share to international agencies who care to maybe support uh, this community, this vulnerable community, and see what can happen. And also, if a terrorist is arrested, who would like? The full length of law to be applied to that situation because if you don't do that, then you don't have a society. Thank you.
I can talk. I don't need a mic. Alright. Sorry. Can I ask my question? Okay. Yeah. Hi, uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, you're very helpful. I'm very interested in the topic. My name is Doug Burton. I'm Doug Burton, and I'm the founder of Wardesk News, which is a multi level platform that reports terrorism uh, in West Africa. So I've worked with uh, Mr. Nada uh, closely. So you make good points that. You're expanding the universe of information uh, through digital media. But what if the what if the public in the United States doesn't care? Uh, Mr. Nada says, well, wants terrorism to end. Well, I'm not so sure. Because the mainstream media in the United States has pretty much blacked out news about terrorism in Nigeria, as we're both aware. So there are some stories, but there are uh, massacres in Nigeria almost every week. Just a couple of days ago, 65 people were murdered by Boko Haram at a funeral in northeastern Nigeria. How many of us saw that uh, covered by Fox News? Or, or, you know, there was a story in the New York Times. This is unusual. Usually they don't cover it, but they got that one. So increasingly it's happening. But what do you do? It's been widely reported that there's kind of a media blackout uh, about the atrocities that have been happening in Nigeria. Some people say it does have anything to do with religion. People say it has a lot to do with religion. Since the hundreds of people storming into the villages in the middle of the night screaming Hallelujah Akbar might have a religious motivation. So, but what if the American public is not informed about it because there's no coverage? The Washington Post has a motto democracy dies in darkness. And to, to which I would say terrorism thrives in darkness. In fact, Tyrannical regimes love no coverage, and to some extent they're not getting it. So, uh, Mr. Dr. Daniels, I'd like you to tell us about what you know, since you've written about it in the Washington Times, about efforts of citizen journalists in the United States to contact their counterparts in the war zones of Nigeria, in uh, Kaduna, where hundreds and hundreds have been recently killed, or in Borno, or in, in other states where there's terrible terrorism, and getting the, the, the reports directly from the victims, and then writing up stories that are published in, in the United States. Uh, well, I guess I would say that um, one of the challenges we have today is uh, definitely um, information overload, people hearing bad news from lots of different sources. Um, I have found, especially with the young people who I teach, um, the most powerful way to communicate a story is through video. We do a lot with digital video. And so, um, to the extent that groups on the ground are able to capture video of, and verifiable, confirmed video of, of, of actions that are happening in their uh, region, uh, that's good. Um, we do have, uh, you know, problems on the horizon. Uh, you, Really, with deep fake technology, which allows you to, with remarkable accuracy, fabricate video now. Uh, it used to require a lot of computing power to do that, but thanks to a team at Carnegie Mellon, it's now available to you on your desktop. So anyone in this room can have a video of them saying all sorts of horrible things on the internet tomorrow, and most people would think it was you. So get ready for this. This is the next wave, yeah? All I can say is the civilized actors have to come together and try to use this technology for good. We have no choice, because bad actors will use it for evil. Um, and that's why we're here. That's why we hope you can help us. Mr. Boku, sorry. Um, we, I think uh, Mr. Boku is doing something which I think is good. Uh, that is citizen-to-citizen -citizen diplomacy, where uh, U.S. citizens who are not aware of uh, what is happening, especially in Nigeria or anywhere, then you will be able to connect uh, such victims with uh, U.S. citizens who care to maybe uh, say a word of encouragement or prayer with such people. So I think that is a good platform also because you are able to actually uh, bypass the black app you are saying. So one-on-one, uh, -on -one, like what you have just done by connecting some Americans with some victims in Nigeria has really gone a long way. So I think that is a good one. One quick question. 
So, um, uh, my name is Seth. I'm, I have a, I'm a co-author of a book coming out called Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. Um, and so my question is, uh, and I want you to have many further editions of this book, but um, the telecom, uh, in order to have this, you need to, to have uh, access to free data, um, and the telecom industry is largely dominated uh, in Africa and, and now increasingly all over Europe um, by a country that uh, in its own state documents denies freedom of speech, freedom of press. And so how do you, uh, and that country's named China, um, and how do you uh, propose to counter that and does that threaten you, uh, does, that, does that concern you? Because that, that because you are now controlling the lever, you, know, you have a, you have a nation that actually can control data, which and they they have written extensively about the importance of data. You bring up a like a, a small topic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a matter of public record that the Chinese government is committed to. Um, censorship and control of information, uh, and it's unapologetic about it. That is their method, their way, and they feel it's fine for them, and um, they're not going to change. Uh, I think it's a disaster for democracy and freedom. And um, that's why I have a couple chapters in my book that focus on the valiant efforts of the public in China to resist and overcome the so-called Great Firewall. Um, there are amazing things happening. Uh, much of it's not reported in English. I had to have a lot of source material translated from Chinese. Um, you know there are people in China talking to each other in blockchain? They encode messages in blockchain communications and send them back and forth to each other because they can bypass the censors. Of course, the, you know, with each year, the Chinese censors increase their use of AI and all sorts of predictive technology to search and censor messages. So it's a cat and mouse game. Um, I will say that um, if we ever do see an end to the censorship by the Chinese regime, it probably will be over an issue that might be different than what we here in the West would worry about. Here in the West, we worry about freedom of speech. I want to express my opinion. In China, it's issues like tainted vaccines, tainted uh, infant formula, where the system has covered up the fact that they're not producing safe vaccines or safe formulas kids, and then you have a tragedy where children die, and, and then of course parents want to complain about this and they're immediately censored and blocked them. You know, these are the issues that one day may crack that firewall, um, and we have to hope that that does occur because a big section of the human race is living behind that firewall right now. But that's a huge, huge issue moving on the horizon. Thank you very much, excellencies, ladies and gentlemen. We have now reached the end of this event. We would like to thank our guest speakers for their presentation and thank you all for your comments. I will now give the floor to Ambassador Shikian for the closing remarks. I will give the floor. Friends, I think you will feel like me that you are thrilled and enthralled by the excellent presentations you have heard and also by the uh, very outstanding uh, contribution and comments made by my colleagues. Uh, the last question was also raised by someone who is uh, not, I'm sure, this only in the season of view. This is not the view of uh, the embassy of the Bishop of Senegal, but this is free speech. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, once again, uh, I would like to uh, thank you all for, for coming and also a special thank to uh, our legal uh, advisor, We also took all the steps leading to this uh, wonderful event. And also our moderator, Mahima, who was also here. <laughs> so, uh, I, I have to have a takeaway from this uh, meeting. It would be this that not only we need to optimize our use of social media, but also we need to have all uh, stakeholders like the states, NGOs, uh, organizations to make sure that we can all do our best to optimize, as I said, the social media uh, in order to enhance and promote human rights, peace, and prosperity. 
thank you for also making your book available and being so gracious and uh, not uh, having anyone to pay for it. <laughs> thank you so very much. And uh, thank you, uh, panelists, for your wonderful presentations. And could you please uh, join your hands in 